0: Chapter 32 Heavenly Gifts. Alberto and I fell into an immediate rhythm and walked with renewed purpose and vigor. We crossed back into Croatia and continued along its winding coastline towards Serbia and Montenegro. We were greeted with recognition wherever we went and usually welcomed without reservation. Can I borrow some money from you? Alberto asked one morning during one of our breaks. Of course, I responded immediately. I just smoked my last cigarette, and I don't have enough for a new pack, he added casually. Alberto had started smoking while in Majigori. Although I didn't agree with his choice, I tried to respect it, but often failed, slipping into lectures about the dangers of smoking. He would listen patiently while lighting up another cigarette, arguing that cigarettes could only harm him if he believed they could. There is no way I am giving you money for cigarettes, I said. For food, for clothes, or anything else, fine. But I am not contributing to your habit. I got up and started to walk away. Alberto eventually caught up with me, grinning like a Cheshire cat, and said, I told you I always get what I want. Congratulations, I replied sarcastically. After you left... He went on, ignoring my sarcastic tone. I began speaking with life, asking for cigarettes, and trusting that if it wasn't hurting me or anyone else, I would receive them. I let go of my doubts and my expectations and just walked. A short while later, something off the side of the road caught my attention. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a packet of cigarettes, still in its original wrapping, unblemished and undamaged. They were the full-strength Marlboros, not the light lighter brands that he usually smoked. It was just lying there, he beamed, excitedly motioning with his arms. There were no cars or other people around, so I have no idea how they got there. They're even full-strength. Ironic, don't you think? I stared at him, incredulous. Not only did he always get what he needed, like food, shelter, and money, but now he was getting cigarettes. It seemed such a frivolous request when he could be asking for more important things. Yet there he was, with his cigarettes in hand. "'Don't you see, Moni?" he continued. "'This is the ultimate proof that magic exists, and that to receive all you have to do is believe.' didn't know what was making me angrier at that moment. The fact that he got the cigarettes or the possibility that he was right, that what he called magic worked, and that we could receive anything that we asked for, no matter how trivial or inappropriate it may appear. I stormed ahead. I cannot believe you're angry, he protested. You're missing the whole point. Moni, Moni, he called out after me but I kept on walking. I gave up on the whole cigarette issue that very day and left him alone whenever he lit up. That simple but remarkable incident would stand out for Alberto as one of the highlights of his journey. It was now April the 5th, 2002, and Alberto's birthday. We were staying in the lovely monastery of Slano, Its kind priest had tended to all our needs, even machine washing our clothing and now we sat with our host sharing stories of our walk. I had hoped to slip out for a while to find a small cake to make Alberto's day complete, but had not yet found the opportunity. A knock on the door interrupted our conversation and the priest went to answer it. When he returned, he held a white rectangular cardboard box. Would you like some cake? He asked, opening the box. I'm performing a wedding this weekend, and the couple has just dropped off this cake as a thank you. Between cigarettes and birthday cake, I didn't know if I was starting to lose my grip on reality or if Alberto was indeed a wizard. The round chocolate cake was beautifully decorated with flowers, its center emblazoned with two interlacing hearts made of tiny silver pearls. We were speechless, but shameless, as we dug in and helped ourselves to two large servings, all to the amusement of the priest staring at us. I am now working on more money, Alberto said, winking at me between mouthfuls. We continued southwards, along the Croatian coastline, and arrived in spectacular Dubrovnik. We were now less than 40 kilometres to the Serbian border. We stayed in a convent that Fradrago had directed us, and where, much to Alberto's delight, learned that one of the nuns spoke Spanish. I followed most of their conversation, which naturally focused on our beliefs, And as Alberto attempted to explain to this elderly nun our faith in the essential goodness of people, she interrupted him and bitterly spat out, Not in all people there isn't. Not in the Serbians. There is no goodness in them. They are a race of barbarians. You can't trust them. They massacred people in a village not far from here, including the women and children they decapitated the children and hung their heads on poles in the middle of the square children she repeated her voice cracking my blood froze as terror ran through my veins she relayed even more horrors explicitly underlining the brutality of her serbian neighbors by the time we bid our goodnights i was feeling less than enthusiastic about leaving croatia Croatia, like Italy, had become comfortable. I had become accustomed to the people and the land. They had embraced us and our message of peace and thus woven a web of protection that accompanied us wherever we went. I was now reluctant to leave that security and once again walk in the unknown. Despite my intention not to be influenced by the judgments of others, I found myself doing exactly that. The nun's vivid and grotesque descriptions mingled with continued warnings from our friends and family about the worsening situation in Jerusalem, haunting me that night. Our hosts invited us to spend an extra day in Dubrovnik, which we used to tour this historic city. In the evening, we met Neda, an energetic woman who headed the local Franciscan women's order. In a voice cracking with emotion, She explained that our story had resonated deeply within her and that she felt the desire to help us. We spoke for a long time with this engaging woman, feeling in her a kindred soul. She excitedly informed us that a small group wanted to share their support by accompanying us on our walk out of the city the following morning. I was thrilled at the idea of witnessing my grand dream of a peace march in Jerusalem becoming real in this small way. Neda reached into her purse and pulled out a stuffed envelope, sliding it across the table. We took up a collection in our parish. Please accept this on behalf of our community, she said. I took the envelope and slid it towards Alberto, unable to hide my amazement. Thank you, Alberto replied sincerely. A decapitated statue of Jesus hung over the display case. A similar one of Joseph stood nearby. To one side was a statue of Mary with her eyes poked out. All their bodies were chipped and nicked. Scarred remnants of various relics sat in the display case, all testimony to clear atrocities. A small plaque explained that this was the work of Serbians. Their presence inside the church made this scene all the more disturbing. We finally arrived in Gruda on the doorsteps of the Serbian border and where we would spend our last night in Croatia. We were guests in the home of a spry, witty woman named Pavica, who looked much younger than her 71 years and who was a friend of Nida's in Dubrovnik. Her home was comfortable, but scarred. Parts of the cement façade were missing or marked with bullet holes. The edges of the windows were roughed out, and the windows didn't fit properly. The furniture looked badly worn and torn. Pavica explained that the Serbian troops had occupied her home during the civil war, And that she had returned a short while ago to start reparations. Perhaps sensing my tension, Pavisa fussed over every detail of our stay with her. What we would eat, where we would sleep, provisions for the next day. She entertained us by playing the piano and singing traditional Croatian songs, all of which endeared her even more to us. I admired the courage of the woman who would return to rebuild, when she could have easily stayed away, and the effort she was making to assuage my fears when I should have been doing that for her. Her son Miro, a 40-ish man with a quiet disposition, joined us that evening. Through his obviously proud mother, we learned that he was a sought-after artist who specialized in restoring works of art. After much gentle prodding, the shy artist finally acquiesced to our seeing his works. In his small studio were broken and decapitated statues of various religious figures. On the floor were partially destroyed or faded paintings. Their sight still disturbed me and I turned away. Miro removed a sheet from a figure on the table, revealing a statue of Mary with lovely vibrant colors. I restore religious artifacts that had been damaged during the war, he said quietly. We spent the following hours going through photos that showed in great detail the painstaking process that each object underwent to be restored to its original glory, its beauty a permanent witness to the great love that Miro poured into that effort. With every statue repainted or painting retouched, I saw him restoring something infinitely more beautiful and rare, hope. Being with Miro, I was reminded that the work of peace required patience, dedication, and infinite love, a task very few are willing to take on, but one that I felt privileged to know in the figure of a humble artist named Miro, a man whose name means peace.